James chapter 4, starting at verse 1 and going through verse 10. These are the words of God. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, uh, so that you may spend it on your pleasure. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So we're going to go on a bit of a journey today uh, through this text. And that journey is going to help us to understand uh, what the text is saying and how we arrive at the understanding of what the text is saying. Um, it's really easy to come to a church and to hear a pastor and them to be very confident in what they say. And in that confidence, you go, that must be true. That must be true, and therefore, I'm going to live by that truth. But I think what pastors need to do and ought to do is uh, share with their congregation, share with the people that they teach and that they lead, how they came to the conclusions they came to, and point that out. It's, it's the idea of teach a man to fish instead of catch him one and feed him for that day, right? So teach a man to fish and allow him to uh, eat any time he wants. And so we're going to look at that today, and we'll take a little bit of a journey. And depending on the time that I have, I may bounce around to a couple of stories that do illustrate this um, This. Uh, section of scripture very well. So we're going to start at verse one, and we're just going to kind of walk through this. And I hope that you'll, uh, I hope you'll gain some insight, not only to what the text says, but how we understand that it does in fact say that. Okay. So verse one says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? One of the things that is important to do when you're reading a, a particular passage is to understand its theme, to understand what's going on in this section. And what uh, James is targeting is actually an issue that we have with pleasure. Okay, uh, he uses a word here, James uses a word here, uh, hedonoi, and it's where we get our modern version or modern word, hedonism. Now, hedonism is not the same as heathenism, right? Um, heathenism is what Jerry Kluss practices. Uh, he, hedonism, hedonism is a philosophical uh, idea that says that pleasure is the ultimate aim of life, right? Pleasure is the ultimate aim of life, but it's not. And I think if you live in such a way that pleasure is the ultimate aim in life, you will be let down at some point, okay? Because, and especially in the Christian life, C.S. Lewis once said that um, if you, and I'm not going to get his phrase exactly right, but if you want happiness, 
Christianity is the, the wrong religion to pick. <laughs> if you want happiness, it's the wrong religion to pick. What does he mean by that? He's not talking about ultimate happiness. He's talking about the reality that if you're going to walk with Christ, it's going to create suffering. You're going to have to suffer in this life. You're going to lay down a lot of things, and those things are going to be challenging to lay down. And all of that, again, is, is part of the sanctifying process. So hedonism, or this philosophy of pleasure as the ultimate aim, is the word that James is using. So we've got to make sure we see it, right? So the theme of our text right now is actually pleasure. And I'll prove this throughout the whole thing. But pleasure is an issue that James has been taking aim at since chapter 1. And what he does is he shows us that uh, our pleasure leads to a lot of bad behavior, okay? Our need for pleasure, correct the way I speak, uh, our need for pleasure changes how we act, okay? So here, what is the problem? What is the problem that our pleasure or our need for pleasure produces? The scripture says, quarrels and fights, now, if you, if you wonder why the church fights with itself, if you wonder why you're fighting in your marriage, if you wonder why you're fighting with your friends, the truth that James tells you is that, is that you have a pleasure problem. You're seeking your own at all times. You want the top for you, and you don't care what is happening to the other person. And this becomes a real problem, doesn't it? Okay, so uh, next time, husbands and wives, you're in an argument, make sure you stop for a second and realize that the quarrel or the fight that you're in is, is derived from the fact that one or both of you are desiring your pleasure over the other. This is why we get to the real practical truth of the scripture that says that we are to prefer our brother's needs as more important than ourselves or, or consider them as more important. It doesn't say we throw our needs away. It doesn't say we don't consider our own wants and desires, but it does say that we prefer another. In other words, we come under other people. So in chapter four, pleasure is the source of uh, the source of quarrels and fights. In chapter 1, and the text is going to be up here, starting at verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14 is kind of the key here. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts or desires or cravings. Uh, what we're going to find today is that many of these uh, words that we're using for lust, desire, craving, uh, even the word that it talks about God's own desire, his jealous desire for us, uh, are a common group of words in Greek that are synonyms, often synonyms for each other. Okay, so, so quarrels and fights are caused because what? We have desires, and we want those desires more than we want anything else. Why is sin present in our life? James says, because your desires. It's not the daggone devil's fault, okay? <laughs> right? Does the devil tempt? Yes, sure, he does tempt. But please understand, he's playing on the desire you have. He's playing on the things that are commonly desirous for you or for mankind. So verse 1 says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? 
Now, those words there are really interesting. Uh, we've got polmoi and makai, and it means wars and battles or fights and quarrels as English renderings show, right? Wars and battles. These are serious matters, okay? This is the cause of every war and every battle that we have. It's always our desire. So verse 2 goes on and he says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Okay, uh, who is James talking to? He's talking to the church, isn't he? Okay, do you think he really means murder here? Maybe. Maybe they are murdering people. <laughs> Maybe he's like, dang, that's just not what Jesus should be known for, guys, right? Or he could be keeping pace with the rest of Scripture, even Jesus himself, that says when you hate a brother in your heart, you've murdered him. So he may be keeping pace and saying, uh, again, we're talking about wars and fights and quarrels and battles. It may be just that you are hating one another. So he says, you lust or desire or crave, and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you notice the root there for fights and quarrels? Envy. Why is envy a root of fighting and quarreling when we just learned that it has to do with desire? Because that's what you're doing when you envy. You're desiring something somebody else has. Do you see it? So that's what you're aiming at. And you're wanting that so bad that you begin to fight. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Okay, so let's, let's take a step back and, and let's think about a story that fits with this. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. First one that comes to mind would be King David, right? King David literally lusts and then commits murder. Has a man killed so that he can have Bathsheba. That's an actual truth in the scripture. And guess what that was started by? David's passion, David's lust, David's cravings, David's desire, okay? Now, bear with me, please, because we're going to see that all desire and all cravings, even that dreaded term lust, is simply translated craving, okay? And we only have one file folder for it. We think sex, okay? But lusting after something, craving after something, desiring after something can, in fact, be a good thing if it is right, and it is really tragic when it is wrong, okay? So verse 2 says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. All of us go, oh, that's David. That seems perfect, right? You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What story does that remind you of? Cain and Abel, right? You literally are envy envying the fact that God accepts that Abel gave of his first fruits when Cain is just giving God a bunch of leftovers, which is typical for most of us, right? And then when God accepts it, the quarrel and the fight begins, and it literally uh, ends in Cain taking Abel's life. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So the last piece there is that desire is a very serious matter. It drives us to fighting and quarreling. It drives us to sin. But the real reason why we don't have the things we desire is because we never checked in with the Father first. Okay? We never checked in with God. All we do is we sit in our mind and we say, here's all the reasons why this is a good thing. And we talk ourselves into it. And we get all excited about it. And then we run after those things. But we don't 
check in with the Father. We need to be asking Him. But here's the problem among Christians. Sometimes we do check in with the Father. (laughs) And we manipulate Him. Let me rephrase. We try to manipulate Him. (laughs) Right? Verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So there's this range of answers that God has for prayer, right? God says yes, God says no, and what's our famous one? God says maybe or not right now, right? That's what we like to say. Yes, no, and maybe not right now uh, for those answers. There's also another uh, deviation there, and that is why God says yes and why God says no, or maybe why God says maybe. The answer here for why God says no is because your heart's wrong. There are things that you've asked for. They might seem pure to you, but God says they're not. And so he says a big fat no to your prayer. How many of you have had those? Yeah. You're like, I want this, God. I promise I'll do well with it. Lord, if you'll let me win, if you'll let me win the lottery, Lord, I got, a, I got an idea, Lord. If you'll let me win Mike, De, Mike DeWine's fascinating COVID weird mystery lottery, if you'll let me win that, I will, I'm not bitter about that at all. Anyway, so if you'll let me win that, I make sure to do it for your, I'll do things for your kingdom. Here's a real important truth for you to understand. How you are in your poverty is exactly how you will be in your riches. You will not win the lottery and turn into a generous person. You're a greedy snot, and you'll always be a greedy snot, right? Unless, unless you surrender, right? Unless you surrender, okay? You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend it on your pleasures. So what did I say the theme of this section was? It was pleasure, right? And every time, the reason why I derive this is because every time James is pulling us back to this issue of pleasures. Even our prayers are, are, are being driven by our pleasures. God, just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. It'll be great, okay? Verse four, you adulteresses, who? Who's James talking to again? The church? Wait a second. That seems weird, doesn't it? Aren't we more than overcomers? (laughs) Aren't we special, friends of God, sweet in his eyes? Aren't we all those things? Sure, you are. Unless you're acting wrong. Right? Do you realize in order to be an adulteress or an adulterer, you have to be in covenant relationship with him? It can't be talking to the world. The only way to cheat on somebody, right, is to already be in a relationship with them, okay? So God is talking to a covenant people here, and he says, you are adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, here's where we get into defining terms and using the Bible to do it. What's it mean to be a friend of the world? What's it mean to be a friend of God or an enemy of God? In this context, it's a person that is driven by desire that is either godly desires or it is worldly desires, isn't it? Being a friend with the world doesn't mean you like to go see movies. Being a friend with the world doesn't mean that you, uh, that you care for earthly treasures or earthly things. 
Uh, th- those things can be fine if they're in check. Amen? Amen? Come on, guys. They can be perfectly fine. As a matter of fact, Paul once said that if, if you think that this means uh, uh, friendship with the world uh, or abstaining from it means that you can't be friends with people who are unbelievers or whatever, you're going to have to leave the world. How many of you got a rocket ship for that one? <laughs> right? We can't even get on Mars without dying. Right? So, so we, we're never going to get anywhere with this. Okay? So we have to realize, we have to understand that friendship with the world is defined according to the passage. And that is those who are fighting and quarreling and bickering and backbiting and all because of their pleasures with one another, you are exhibiting friendship with the world. And when you do this, what does James say? You have made yourself an enemy of God. And what else does he call you? Adulteresses. He has called you adulteresses because you're not getting it. What is the church supposed to be known for? What did Jesus say we would be known for? Or that uh, people would know that we were his disciples by this one characteristic. What is it? Love. Where is room for love when all we do is quarrel and fight? There's no room for it. And the reason why love is not there is because love requires, hear me church, love requires a suppression. This sounds so, uh, this sounds so binding. It sounds so uh, much like being in prison, but it's true freedom. Love requires a subjugation of desire. Love requires it. You have to kill it. You have to put it in the ground. You have to put this behind. Because when the Bible says that we are free in Christ, it doesn't mean we're free to anything, are we? No. We're free unto his ways. We're free from sin. We're free from death. So what we've been called to is freedom. But love requires subjugation of desire. And when we don't subdue our desires... What happens is we quarrel and we fight. What would you say the modern church is marked by? Love or adultery? We're seeing adultery right now. And remember, this is not a shot against Christ's bride. This is a reprimand to bring her to truth. Amen? Please understand, God has many ways in which he, he corrects his church Okay, I I recently had a conversation with somebody and they asked me the question, what is your view on the church? And I said, depends on what we're talking about. (laughs) If we're talking about the four walls that are called the building, I could care less. You could take it or leave it. It doesn't matter to me. If you're talking about the organizations that we call the church, which people have created with a 501c3 so that everybody can get tax-exempt status and that we can have some sort of strange affiliation, a club... Uh, I'm not a huge fan, to be honest with you. I just don't know any other way around it. But if you're talking about the bride of Christ, which is the true understanding of the church, if you're talking about the bride of Christ, I absolutely love her. I love her because I'm a part of her. And James loved her enough to say, right now, you're being an adulteress. Right now, You're running from your true love. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. And what does he mean by that? Definition. You're craving your own desires. You're running after your own stuff. The church is marked by this, church. 
We are marked by this church. How is it that we uh, get to a place to subdue our desires? Well, that's where the end of the message will get us. But let's keep going first, and we'll, we'll get there. Subjugation of desire is the aim so that true fulfillment can arise. But listen to verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He, God, jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, we're going to do a couple of things here. We're going to talk about where we derive things from the Bible. And when we can't find them, which gives all kinds of implications. As well as... um, as well as God's character in all of this. Let's deal with the biblical derivation first. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But look at verse 5 again. It says, Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? There is no verse in the Bible that says this. Uh Uh-oh. Not one verse in the Bible that says this. There are scholars who say, Oh, he's stealing from Galatians, so there's a reference there. That would be lunacy. And why would that be lunacy? It would mean that James had the New Testament in order to reference it. It didn't, it didn't happen, okay? There, there are small references that people might have had with each other, but this is not one of them, okay? Based on dating of writing, okay? Second thing, we can find pieces of these ideas through the text of Scripture, but we do not find this one particular verse. So what do we do with that? Well, it leaves us with some interesting implications. One of the implications is there's other stuff out there. There's other stuff out there. There are other writings out there. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Hey, James, I got a question. Which scripture are you talking about? He's like, I don't know. I can't find it. It's not in my, uh, it's not in my database here, <laughs> right? He is implying, there's something that is implied here, that there is more beyond what we have in our 66 books. Does that throw a wrench in inspiration of Scripture? No, it doesn't. It doesn't throw a wrench in it at all. It doesn't create a problem for us at all. As a matter of fact, many scholars believe that there should be more, or there are more letters to Corinthians than what we have. Some scholars believe 1, 2, and 3 Corinthians are all fit within what we call 1st and 2nd. Some people believe that it still doesn't, it hasn't manifested itself, and it isn't seen. But this doesn't throw a, a wrench in inspiration. The question that we have to ask is, is this true and can we find it, even though it's not verbatim, can we find it throughout the rest of God's word? And the answer to that question is yes. We can find it in places like Exodus 20 verse 5, in places like Exodus 34 verse 14. But at best, scholars and interpreters have to put it together. See, this is a challenging art interpretation and uh, scholarship. It's a, it's a very challenging art form, but somebody has to do it, and I'm grateful that they do it so that we can have some understanding. So that's the first thing, just something to put in your pipe and smoke it for a while, that there might be other things that are pulled from. I know everybody's like, where is this analogy coming from? Anyway, so just, just play with that for a little bit. Verse 5, or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, if you have a digital Bible, I want you to switch that translation over to the NIV, okay? 
and I want to be a complete and total dork with you for just a second. You want to know how hard it is to translate words. This is how hard it is to translate words. This verse can say one of three things. This is fun. And one of them is completely opposite of what is said here. Okay. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? That's the most common rendering now. Okay. Most common rendering. What is that saying, church? God jealously longs for the spirit, maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe the spirit he has created us with, that he has caused to dwell in us. He is longing for us like a, like a groom longs for his bride, right? You see the imagery there. Okay, here's the way it can also be rendered. It can also be rendered to say that the spirit he has caused to dwell in us envies intensely. Well, that's backwards. Now it just said that the spirit God has caused to dwell in you is actually a a spirit that envies intensely. Well, what's the implication there? Well, all my envy is actually God's fault. (laughs) God gave me the spirit. I'm the one who's envying. Uh, But we have to ask what the object of the envy is, right? It should be that the spirit God has put in us is envying after the one who put it there. Amen? Right? So God has done that. Third rendering. That the spirit he caused to dwell in us longs jealously. So this is true, if we read it the same way. That the spirit God has put in us is longing jealously for what? For him, okay? Now, I I don't know which translation to pick inside of that. But it it is most often rendered the way I read it on the screen, which is the way I put up there for the NASB. Again, verse 5 says, Or do you think that the, the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, that's an amazing idea when we think about our desires cause quarrels, our desires cause sin. Uh, we're supposed to be marked by love, but instead we're marked by idolatry or, or by uh, infidelity, okay, which I guess is idolatry too. So, So what is said here in verse 5 is actually God wants you to wake up from this desirous lifestyle. He wants you to wake up from it and he wants you to come back to him. Why? Because he is jealously desiring you. We need to think about the character of God right now. Who does God want right now? Who does God want? And you can say it real loud. Us. He wants us. He wants us enough to warn us of our problems. He wants us enough to tell us the truth about it, you adulteresses. And he wants us enough to say, I am jealously desiring for you. Now, there are people who have a problem with this rendering that God jealously desires. Because they say, well, God, if he's perfect and good, he can't can't be jealous. It goes even further in the Bible. It's actually one of his names. The Bible says, and jealous is his name. What does that mean? It's not the way you're jealous. It's not envy. It's not bitterness because somebody has something you don't have and your desire is kicking in. It is God longs for that which he owns. Right? How many of you long for the things you own? Like, that's mine. (laughs) I want that. What stories do we remember that, that fit this bill? 
The story of the lost sheep. What does the, what does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. And here's what happens so often in the church. We stop remembering what the theme is or what the idea is that, that the author is communicating. And we make all kinds of dumb doctrinal ideas about it. The scripture also says there will be more rejoicing in heaven for the one lost sheep than for the one sinner who repents than for 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you know that that is not saying there are some righteous people in this world that need no repentance? It's simply saying that there are drifters from the flock and Jesus is so rejoicing at their return that there will be more rejoicing in heaven for their return than for the ones who stayed put. He's happy about the ones who stayed put. <laughs> I'm happy when my children stay put. But when the one drifts off and I bring them back, I am at peace. I am relieved because I got them back. I am happy about this. The, the shepherd is jealously desiring that one sheep. He's jealously desiring it. Why? Because he owns the sheep. Guess what image you bear? You, you bear the image of God, don't you? You know that, that that means that's his, right? You know that's why he jealously desires. This is why the central theme of the Bible is absolutely unquestionably that God wants all men everywhere to be saved. Period. Why? Why? He didn't create some without his image. Then this is a contradiction, right? Well, he jealously desires some. No, he absolutely loves every image bearer he has. This is why the scripture says, Jesus says, he says, who's, who's on that coin? Oh, it's Caesar. He says, good, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you render to God what is God's. Who is God's? You are. You are. He will hunt you down because he loves you that much. Okay? He will come after you to make sure you understand how much he loves you. The other story that seems to fit here would be the story of the prodigal son, Right? The story of the prodigal son. This young boy, he goes off. He wants his inheritance. He runs away from his father. And in his brokenness, in his depravity, if you would like to use that language, in his uh, you know, being base and being completely at the bottom, in that moment, what turns him back? His own inert goodness. No, that's not what turns him back, right? I don't even know what words I'm using right now. It's okay. It's okay. Right? It doesn't turn him back right now. There. What turns him back? A preacher came and talked about hellfire. No, he kind of was experiencing his own hellfire. He's eating the slop of the pigs. I'm not suggesting that's not truth that we need to talk about, that we, we need to ignore. What turns him back is the goodness of his father. Because he remembered how good his father was to his servants, the son turns around and says, well, I'd rather be a servant in my dad's house than to be the king of my own world. So he turns around. It was the goodness of his father. What happens when the son makes it back within eyesight of his father? His dad books it off the porch, hikes up his little Jewish skirt, and tackles the boy, right? That's what happens, right? So he tackles the boy. What image do we keep getting here? 
We keep getting the image of a God who loves us and who jealously desires the spirit that he made to dwell in us. Now, we could do what modern day preachers do or some sticks in the mud uh, and say, I want to tell you this message from the harshest vantage point and let you know you pray wrong, you are desirous, you're covetous, you're greedy, you're a backbiter, you're a fighter, you're a heathen, repent. Yes, I'm going to tell you that in just a second. But before I get there, I want to tell you who you're repenting to. You're repenting to a father who loves you. You are repenting to a groom who has ever been faithful to you. He's not moved his eyes to the right or to the left one time, church. And what does he want? He wants you. He wants me. Why? I'm still confused. But he, he loves us, church. And so he goes on. He says, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But... He gives a greater grace, therefore it says. Now, that but is why some of those other renderings could possibly be what that translation says. What the translation might be saying is that the spirit God has placed inside of us is jealously desiring him. It's wanting to get back to him, but we're fighting it with our desires. We're fighting it with pulling away. And then all of a sudden we have but... While you're fighting it, he says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but what church? But gives grace to the humble. Okay, so now the repentance message kicks in. Submit therefore and resist, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We're going to get to verse 9 here in a second because that just sounds like tons of fun Christian life. Be miserable. Woohoo! Sounds great, right? But here's the deal. I want you to see, again, that all desire is not bad. According to verse 5, if it is rendered the way we have it on the screen, God jealously desires. God jealously desires, doesn't he? So there's nothing wrong with desire. It just has to be in the right way. Okay, this is the same word that is used in chapter one for lust. Okay, so it's really, really important. He jealously desires the spirit, but he gives a greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What are you submitting here? Your desires, right? Your desires. And what is your desire making you out to be? A friend of the world, an adulteress, all the wrong things, right? You're supposed to submit yourself to God. This is desires subjected to the Father. No matter what, true love means subjecting our desires. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So submit, subject your desires, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Very important thing uh, to talk about here. Uh, this is a contend against the devil, but it is not contend the way you think it is. The Bible says resist the devil. It doesn't say pick a fight with him. Don't pick a fight with him. The Bible also says that the angels, uh, Gabriel and Michael, didn't dare speak a harsh word against him in reprimand, but said, the Lord will rebuke you. 
right? Listen, you ain't stronger than Michael or Gabriel. I don't recommend you trying to take on the devil. That just makes you stupid with a capital S, right? So draw near to God, resist the devil. And then verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What's the character of God again? Love, grace. What's he going to do if you'll draw near to him? Ah, He's going to take it under advisement. Not really sure. You kind of bite the big one. Last week's sin was worse than this week's sin, so I'm not really sure if this is going to go that way. Um, Jesus tells us that if, that if a brother sins against us seven times in a day, we're to forgive him seven times in a day. And the way modern preachers preach, Jesus himself is not that gracious. Right? If your friend is hurting you seven times in a day and asks for forgiveness, you should forgive them seven times in a day. But with God, it's like, I did something wrong last week. I think I might be out of his kingdom. Are you serious? God gives a greater grace. He rejects the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit to him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. There is a dual uh, truth happening here. Cleanse your hands is an image that says fix your behavior and purify your hearts is where that behavior comes from. So please don't miss it, okay? We are talking about... uh, uh, We are talking about... Um, believing loyalty in God, okay? We trust him, we believe in him, and then we walk after him as a sign of our lives. Does that mean Christians won't mess up? Not even close. We mess up all the time. But the question is, are we to run back to the Father, or are we to double down in our pride, and are we to hold our ground? David ran back to the Father. He asked for forgiveness for his ways, And God blessed him, and God watched over him, and God took care of him. The prodigal son returned to his father, and what happened after his dad tackled him in the yard? He reappointed him as a son, not as a servant. This is the the heart of the father, right? Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Back in ancient times, the heart and the mind were often... uh, uh, combined they didn't understand that we had a brain in this way Um, so not exactly the way we do Um, so purifying your hearts he calls them double-minded so somehow in purifying your heart it makes you single-minded do you see the implication there okay so then verse 9 be miserable and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom have a great day guys I want you to go home and I want you to think about that one long and hard, right? Just go home and think about how much this Christian life is miserable. No, no, don't do that, right? But don't write this passage off because you know what Mark just shared with us this morning in Psalm 30 verses 4 and 5, that joy comes in the morning. Because joy, joy comes in the morning because the Father lifts you up. Joy doesn't come in the morning because you forgot your previous day's sins. (laughs) Out of sight, out of mind. I've got this. No, 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 no. Joy comes in the morning because God lifts you up. But mourning comes as well. And mourning is a true sign of repentance. Be miserable and mourn and weep. 
I don't think pastors like to talk about this because I think we talk about this. We, we, talk, we don't want to do this because we believe what A.W. Tozer talked about when he talked about two different crosses. He said that there's a new cross and there's the old cross, the ancient cross, the true cross. The new cross is such that, um, that we make everything in the Christian life uh, palatable, every sacrifice, everything that we're supposed to do, we make it happy and soft and pleasant. And so guess what happens? Everybody goes, sign me the heck up. I love Jesus. I mean, what you just told me about Jesus is life is going to be good as long as I sign up for Jesus, right? No, 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 no. What Jesus said is life's going to be hard. What Jesus said is life's going to be difficult. What Jesus said is that you're going to be having to repent at times. And when you do, it's going to be difficult. And what you need to do is you need to weep and you need to mourn and you need to wail. And you need to really turn back from these things, okay? So again, here's the statement. Be miserable. Be miserable. Mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. It seems that even in sin, sometimes we're laughing and we're joyful. And James is telling you to knock it off. Now, let's turn it around. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Turn to Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5. It will not be on the screen. Psalm 30. Verses 4 and 5. As a matter of fact, let's just read it. Uh, let's read it in its entirety. All of Psalm 30. Thanksgiving for deliverance from death. A song uh, of David. Okay? Thanksgiving for deliverance from death. And guess what sin leads to, church? Death. Okay? So let's just put this into the context of deliverance. When God says repent, and I want to call you back, let's just put that into that context just for our own time. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. You have not let my enemies rejoice over me. Why? Because he stepped in and and wooed you back, right? O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you, his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. What's the character of our God? His character is anger for a moment, but favor for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, But a shout of joy comes in the morning. Why? Because we just read it in James 4. He will lift you up. Verse 6. Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that, may, uh, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God. I give thanks to you forever. 
Passion is our problem. Wrong passion is our problem. It is the source of every fight we get ourselves into. It is the source of every sin we find ourselves attached to. God says that that passion and those fights and those sins are the markings of people who are friends of the world. You are a friend of the world. And when you're a friend of the world, the scripture says you've become an enemy of the Most High God. When you've become an enemy of the Most High God, you have to realize the other image is that you have been adulterous. You have cheated on the Father. You have cheated on the Son, who is your groom, okay? You are running from Him, but He has ever been faithful. And the beauty of the story is that if you will humble yourself in the sight of God, if you will repent, if you will weep and mourn and wail, if you will do this, the character of that groom extends forever. And here's his character. I will forgive you. I will love you. I will take you. I will accept you. I want that none of you should perish. And so your ability to perish lies in your hands right now. All of our ability to perish lies in our hands right now. And what does it take to not perish? Trust him. Trust him. Repent of the sin that has got you where you are, of the actions that have taken you away from him. Turn around and say, I will be yours. I know you've already declared you will be mine. Guys, this story is so common in the scripture. Read Jeremiah and you will find of the unfaithfulness of Israel. Read the entire work of Hosea and you will find the unfaithfulness of Israel. Read James and you will find the unfaithfulness of the church. And God's mercy has endured and has stayed the same forever. He says, come to me. Come to me. Repent of your sins. Repent. I want you to be miserable. I want you to mourn. I want you to weep. But here's what I will promise you. I will lift you up. I will lift you up. I will lift you up. See, James tells us the character of our God. And he also tells us the problems that we have with our passions. So today is a step of just kind of practical help. I would ask you to go home this week and I would ask you to weigh the desires that you have. Not all desires are sinful or bad, but I would ask you to weigh your desires. I would ask you to find out if those desires make you a friend of the world or if they are in keeping with the truth of God's word. You need to be assessing yourself on this Every single day of your life. Every single day of your life. Because passion and desire have this funny way of taking us straight off of our mission. They do. They have this funny way of just distracting us. And if you think you're too big to be distracted, you got another thing coming. Each and every one of us has this. Each and every one of us struggles with this. And we must always look and make sure Here's what you may find. You may find that your desire is noble and good and fine or well within God's commands. But you also may find that even in the smallest thing, it is completely uh, against God's will. If that's the case, weep and mourn. 
and wail. Come back to him. Knowing this, that the father that the prodigal son turned around to see is the same father that you get to turn around and see. I imagine God hiking up his skirt, running off that heavenly throne, and tackling you, each and every one of you, if you'll do it. Amen.